Hey guys, just a heads up, a lot of the information in today's episode comes from a study that uses returns from the e-vestment database from 1997 to 2017. It focuses on core, core plus, and unconstrained managers with at least five years of data and whose tracking error to their benchmark was less than their volatility. And now, on to the show. This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. Average isn't always that great. No one's exactly wowed by average coffee, average athletes, or average movies. But in fixed income, average might be pretty good. Today, we're going to talk about some research that finds in many places the average fixed income manager seems to beat their benchmark. And beating a passive benchmark is something that's notoriously difficult to do. We asked two experts how this is happening. First, someone with decades of experience in the field. My name is Tony Gould, and I'm responsible for building out the fixed income platform at AQR. We'll also hear from a former professor from London Business School, who now oversees AQR's research in credit and fixed income. Hi, it's Scott Richardson, principal at AQR Capital Management. To start, let's talk about fixed income as an asset class. Tony says that for most investors, it plays some pretty important roles in a portfolio. One is to hedge some future liability. And so you see pension funds and insurance companies um, have a good portion of their portfolios in fixed income to hedge those future liabilities. Uh, But another important reason why all investors tend to want to hold fixed income securities is to diversify risk. For many investors, equities are by far the largest source of expected return and risk in their portfolio. Fixed income can be used to diversify that risk, which is one reason why the asset class is so important. It's also surprisingly big, though it's hard to say exactly how big. So whereas with the equity markets, you can go to a given exchange and ask, what's the total value of equities that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange? They'll have that number because they have a record of every single equity. With the fixed income markets, you don't have that information. That is not, there's no public information on prices. There's no public information on amounts outstanding for a lot of these securities. So it's really difficult to get a handle on what's the total size of the bond market. If, I, if, if we had to take a stab, we say somewhere in the range of 70 to $80 trillion. I don't even know how many zeros a trillion has, so this is... <laughs> <laughs> we're getting beyond our depth here. There are a handful of major investment strategies that fixed income managers follow. These include aggregate, core plus, and unconstrained. Managers in the first category generally stay within the confines of their benchmarks. For U.S. and global aggregate managers, that means investment-grade bonds. Then there are core plus managers. They can also be benchmarked to an aggregate index, but they have a bit more flexibility. They can invest some more in riskier securities like high yield or emerging markets. Finally, unconstrained managers. They have the most discretion, both in terms of what they invest in and how they do it. For example, many unconstrained managers use leverage and shorting in their portfolios. In all three of these categories, Scott and Tony found the average is pretty good. Unlike the case for equity managers, active fixed income managers tend to beat their benchmarks. I mean, ultimately, it is a giant market and more complicated than, say, equities. So maybe that explains it. But maybe not. 
One of the most entrenched ideas in investing is that active management is a zero-sum game. You know, if one manager beats the benchmark, another manager must lose. And if you add up all active managers, you have to end up with the same returns as the benchmark. And that's before any costs and fees. But when it comes to fixed income, the results are pretty different. Surprisingly, if you take the average returns of lots and lots of active fixed income managers, you don't end up with the benchmark's returns. Gross of fees, you end up with something higher. And this isn't true for just some cherry-picked esoteric index. Scott Richardson's team found this in many of the biggest fixed income universes, including Core Plus, Global Ag, and Unconstrained. And the evidence here is overwhelming that there's a positive excess of benchmark return. People look at this and say, oh, it's easy. Fixed income must somehow be easier because every man and his dog can build a portfolio that beats what you see in the benchmark. If you ask a fixed income manager, they'll have lots of reasons for why it's easier for them to beat a benchmark. Tony's a former fixed income portfolio manager himself. He's heard a bunch of these stories. For one, consider the indices. The broadly used fixed income indices like the U.S. aggregate index are in by no means representative of the total size of the bond market. So there may be a lot of opportunities outside the index that managers uh, can source. This might explain the puzzling result that the average manager outperformed their benchmark. If enough active managers reach for bonds outside the benchmark, and if those bonds outperform, the average manager can actually have higher returns than the benchmark. Here's another reason why active bond managers might be doing so well. It's easy to beat the benchmark when lots of other fixed income investors aren't in it for the profits. Take central banks. They're not buying segments of bond markets to outperform a benchmark. They're doing it to invest their large reserves. They want to maintain liquidity. They're not maximizing return. So perhaps the fact that these large investors that are not trying to maximize returns presents opportunities for those investors that are looking for uh, returns. These reasons suggest it might be pretty easy to beat a fixed income benchmark. But what does the data say? Well, Tony and a few colleagues decided to test the actual returns of active managers so they could find out where all this outperformance is coming from. What we found was that many, many active managers generate their excess return over their benchmark by simply being long credit risk. So um, having been a bond manager myself, I believed for a lot of years that bond managers were better looking and smarter than their equity colleagues. Now we realize that they're certainly not smarter. The credit risk premium is what an investor expects to get for bearing default risk. In other words, as a bondholder, you should be compensated more when there's a higher chance of not getting paid back in full. Fixed income benchmarks already have some credit premium embedded within them. What Tony is saying is that most managers take even more credit risk than the benchmark. There are lots of ways to do this. You could tilt towards lower rated names in a benchmark. You could tilt towards lower rated sectors. You could even go outside of the benchmark universe altogether. But no matter how you slice it, you get more exposure to credit risk. Tony and his colleagues found that the vast majority of ag, core plus, and unconstrained managers' active returns could be explained by just a simple credit index. And this might be a problem for lots of investors. Having extra credit risk in your bond portfolio can detract from some of the benefits of owning fixed income in the first place. You're missing out on diversification when managers add more credit risk to their fixed income portfolios. It makes their returns behave more like stock returns. And that means when stocks go down, they tend to drag down the bond portfolio too. Those periods when equity markets are under pressure, 
like the fourth quarter of 2008, also tend to be periods when corporate bond markets or credit risk is also under substantial pressure. And so in that fourth quarter of 2008, we found that the average US aggregate benchmark manager underperformed their index by nearly 4%, just in that one quarter. 4% in a quarter. So much for diversification. Now, you might think, sure, my manager may be giving me extra credit risk, but that's a tactical decision. Maybe it's okay that they're exposed to credit on average because they reduce the exposure in bad times and take advantage of it in good times. Tony says not so fast. We found no sign or signal that managers had any skill in timing that exposure. Uh, We found only limited tactical changes in manager allocations. The way that we tend to describe it is managers tended to deviate from either being overweight credit to being very overweight credit. What this means practically is that for many investors in active fixed income funds, the diversification they're hoping for is a bit of an illusion. There is broad recognition among the more sophisticated asset owners that a lot of fixed income managers are simply long different forms of credit risk uh, consistently. But I think there's a grudging acceptance that that is the landscape generally of active fixed income management, that that's what most active managers are actually doing. So yes, credit is a source of risk, but it's also a source of returns. Scott Richardson is the co-head of AQR's fixed income team. He says you should still care about how much you pay for that return. You're getting what's essentially a passive credit exposure from an active manager. And that has a cost. It's excess returns, but then is the fee right? I would say emphatically no. You should pay a hell of a lot less. Don't pay active fees for simple credit exposure. It's a source of returns you can probably get more directly and cheaply elsewhere. Now what about alpha? Sources of returns that can't be explained by well-known things like the credit premium. Returns that are truly diversifying. Well, for that, we turn to our old friends, factors. Factors are essentially investment themes. They're used to describe attractive characteristics of assets. Check out episode two of season one if you'd like a refresher, because we're about to dive right back into them. Factors are a time-tested, well-known feature of the equity landscape and one of the building blocks of systematic investing. But systematic approaches need good data. And while equity markets have lots of it, fixed income has lagged. Scott found out about this firsthand decades ago as an academic. You're looking at credit markets in particular, and you say, oh my God, the data is awful. Uh, Just getting access to reliable return data, mapping issues. So you're looking to buy a bond of a company. It's embedded inside a complicated organizational structure. Do you have the right financial statement data to get a handle on what the credit risk of that instrument is? Equities is sort of simple. One stock, one firm, market data, uh, trading's pretty clean. It's not easy, but in a relative sense, it's a lot easier to be systematic in equity markets than, than credit markets. Going back a few decades, very few investors would have had access to reliable long-term bond data. Even today, that data only goes back to the 80s. So systematic investing was naturally late to the game in fixed income. But as more and more fixed income data came online, researchers could start to test out factors. And where to start? How about the same strategies that worked in equities? Most definitely. I mean, the, the, the beauty of factors is these are uh, efficient ways to describe attractive characteristics of assets. It's just the degree of difficulty is higher. 
So it'd be like, you know, if I turned up to the three-meter springboard event at the Olympics and I do my belly flop or pike you know, <laughs> dive, difficulty is one. So the equity portfolio, I think, hard to do, but the relative difficulty is, you know, nowhere near as much as what we have to pull off for our credit portfolios. When it comes to implementing factors, you have to adapt to each asset class. And fixed income is just more complicated than equities. Take the value factor as an example. In stocks, we think of value as the price of something compared to fundamentals. Things like book value, earnings, operating cash flows. And for corporate bonds, you can do something similar. Here you're looking to measure what's the price or credit spread compared to some estimate of default. If the price is relatively low or the credit spread is relatively wide, then you have a bond that looks attractive on value. You could do the same exercise for other factors, like momentum. The idea is be long, be exposed to companies that have had better returns uh, recently relative to their peers. And for other factors? Well, we know about the defensive factor in equities or the carry factor in currencies. Those are factors in fixed income too. And they can be a good starting point to look for alpha in this asset class. It's one thing to find that these factors work, but does it necessarily mean you want them in a portfolio? Here, here's what I mean. What if you already have an equity manager focused on the value factor? Do you need a bond manager investing in value too? That might sound like doubling up on the same thing. Scott says value investing is quite different in stocks than in bonds. Not every company that has public equity has debt. And likewise, there are many companies that have debt that don't have public equity. Okay, so you actually get different companies. There's different industry compositions. There's different segments of the market that trade uh, up and down the capital structure. The fundamental anchor for equity is some measure of intrinsic value from the financial statements. For credit, it's your view on default risk. Okay, they're, they're operationally very different things. And for managers, it's different too. In equities, systematic approaches have been around for a while. And the simplest version of them can be found in things like ETFs and smart beta strategies. But in fixed income, it can get way more complex. One reason is that trading bonds is not that straightforward. Stocks you can buy in $100 clip sizes at you know, 2 microsecond latency, you cannot do that for corporates. It might take a couple of days for you to trade one stub of a million dollars. So for bonds, data is scarce and trading can be tough. That might explain why systematic investing in fixed income took so long to catch on. That said, the underlying concepts are actually familiar to many fixed income investors. When you go talk to some of the largest asset owners in the world will have large internal fixed income teams. They know companies inside and out. And I'll sort of walk them through sort of the default modeling in particular and just describe how we do it systematically. It might take an hour sort of going through different approaches to, to forecast default. Then they'll step back and say, we're doing sort of this stuff ourselves." To me, that's, you know, it says what we're doing is very common at a high level as to what others are doing with traditional fixed income uh, managers. But although some of the investment themes are similar, a big difference is the implementation which means the actual portfolio you end up with can be highly diversifying. So I think that the underlying ethos for the investment philosophy hasn't changed. It's the way in which you choose to operationalize it. It has. Tony and Scott look at it like this. The way fixed income managers have historically beaten their benchmarks is by taking risks that investors already have exposure to, like credit. And these risks are probably in your portfolio already, so they're not contributing much to diversification. So the way the economy performs 
is therefore going to determine how those active managers do, whether equity markets are going down, whether the economy is in recession or in a growth phase. Investors can test this for themselves. Look under the hood to get a better idea of where your active returns are coming from. Is it market-sensitive stuff like credit? Or is it to other risks already in your portfolio? If so, are those risks worth the fee? But there are other sources of returns out there, like factors. And one of their characteristics is that they tend to be independent of the economy or equity markets. So a diversified, systematic exposure to what we think are well-compensated teams, that's what's missing in a lot of traditional fixed income portfolios. The systematic fixed income uh, asset managers like an upstart looking to sort of change that. If you want to see the data for yourself, head to the Curious Investor page at aqr.com curious. And if you want extra credit, reach out to us at curious at aqr.com. Next time on The Curious Investor, we explore risk, both in investing and on Mars. These things are too complicated for any human being to wrap their head around. And that's not unique to the Mars rovers. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you next time. Okay, cool. Great. <clears throat> I hope you weren't happy with anything you just said because you lost it. <laughs> <laughs> you told me a bomb joke once, and I thought it was hilarious, and then I forgot what that was. Do uh, you have, like, a, a bag of awesome bond jokes? Yeah, so, so there's an old joke, which is, what's the difference between a bond and a bond manager? And the answer is that a bond matures. That was. <laughs> I, Gabe's, Gabe's heard that joke six times and every time he gets hard every time. Do you want to maybe just, if you can, in like 20 seconds, explain what a credit default swap is? No. Thank you. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> the views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2019, AQR Capital, LLC, all rights reserved.